Whether you're a whiskey aficionado or new to the world of whiskeys, I invite you to pull up a chair and join me around the bar as we pour a dram and share in our love of all things whiskeys. Hi, I'm your host, Victor. You can call me Vic, and welcome to Distilled. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the bar. Welcome back to Distilled. Today, we'll be talking about a very important date within the history of American spirits and especially bourbon whiskey. A lot of people know it as Star Wars Day. That is right. May the 4th be with you. Um, If you go to different websites for American distilleries, especially those that produce bourbon, and you read some of their blogs, you'll probably find one or two articles about May 4th, 1964. And they typically romanticize this date. Um, It was a very important date for bourbon, uh, but it really wasn't all that romantic. Um, There was a lot of moving pieces, a lot of backdoor deals, stuff going on behind the scenes. Um, It was a very capitalistic venture. And it may have been fueled by anti-communist sentiment. Um, Who knows? Uh, But really, it's uh, if you dig into it, the story of how bourbon became designated a distinctive product of the United States is a lot more fascinating and interesting than some of these more romanticized blog posts and articles would have you believe. <laughs> so, basic timeline. Um, in February of 1963, the senator of Kentucky introduced a bill to designate bourbon whiskey as a distinctive product of the United States. And in September, the Senate passed the bill and it moved on to the House. Um, I think it was the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, In April, though, the House skipped voting, but in May, it passed on May 4th. Uh, 1964. So, what was going on in America at this time? The distilling industry was one of the most corrupt industries in America still. The industry was still tied to organized crime and the FBI and the DOJ. Uh, they were They were pretty wary of the distilling industry. And uh, this was still viewed as a blue-collar drink. So there wasn't really a lot of, um, not necessarily support, but there just wasn't a big push from legislatures to get this bill passed. Uh, But the Bourbon Institute, a lobbying committee founded by Louis Rosensteel, really pushed to have this legislature passed. And Louis Rosensteel himself is pretty heavily responsible for this piece of legislature. He was a very shrewd businessman. 
He founded the Bourbon Institute, and he was also the head and founder of the Shenley Distillers Corporation, which at the time was one of the largest, if not the largest, producer of whiskey. And part of why he did this was he made a bad bet and uh, about 10 years before, and he also wanted to open up his bourbon on the international market. Now, within the House of Representatives, we had the Congressman John V. Lindsay from New York, who did not want this bill passed because he had personal ties to a bourbon distillery in Mexico that was uh, owned and operated by two Kentucky families. And this distillery in Mexico was exporting whiskey that it labeled as bourbon. And because Congressman Lindsay had ties to it, he did not want them to lose that designation of bourbon. Uh, there was also the European Free Trade Association, which imposed little to no tariff on imported scotch whiskies within the seven countries that had signed this agreement, but they controlled 100% of the tariffs on imported bourbon. So they kind of shut bourbon out of the market, out of the European market, uh, which a lot of World War II vets in America kind of found insulting. Uh, and around this time, Congress and the FBI were skeptical of major distillers since they had had ties to organized crime, and Rosenstiel himself had been indicted on charges of bootlegging during Prohibition. So, let's get back to Rosenstiel. Uh, this whole piece of legislature really started because Rosenstiel made a bad bet. Looking back at the history of whiskey production in the United States, he noticed that during major wars and conflicts, the industry kind of shut down. It stopped producing whiskey, and distillers were required to produce industrial-grade alcohol for the war effort. And the Korean War was starting up, and it was we were getting involved in the conflict in Korea, and so he thought the same thing would happen. So to stay ahead of the curve, he sent his distilleries into overdrive and overproduced extra bourbon. But the production never shut down. He created a market bubble. Although there were a lot of people drinking uh, whiskey at this time, the, the supply did not meet no, the demand did not meet the supply. There was too much bourbon. He was swimming in a sea of bourbon. And the way the taxes worked on distilled spirits at this time was after eight years, he would have to pay taxes on the bourbon and either sell it at a loss or destroy it. So if he sold it at a loss, he would literally flood the market and it would cause an economic meltdown as competitors tried to sell at even lower prices in order to compete. Lots of distilleries would have ended up closing. And if he destroyed his bourbon, well, 
he lost out on revenue uh, and he technically would have lost money. So he pushed to extend the tax deadline so he could age his whiskey longer. He also tried, at this time, Rosensteel was also a member of the Distilled Spirits Institute, which was also a lobbying company. And he tried to persuade his fellow members, who are also his competitors, to uh, help support this tax extension, allowing them to also age their whiskeys. But they refused to help because they didn't have the extra stocks that Rosensteel did. So it would have put them at a huge disadvantage down the road. And as we know today, the longer you age a good bourbon, the, the flavor profile changes, often for the better. And there's a lot of premium bourbons on the market right now that are aged for that 20 to 25 years. Uh, Pappy 23 is one example. It's the one that I, I can just think of off the top of my head. So his competitors didn't have enough whiskey themselves for this to be a, a good idea for them. It would have totally put Rosensteel ahead of the competition. So he founded the Bourbon Institute. Uh, the Bourbon Institute pushed for the Forend Act, F-O-R-A-N-D, Forend. And this act extended tax payments to a bourbon's 20th year of age. And remember, bourbon age is dictated by time in the barrel. So this allowed Rosensteel to age his bourbon longer, so he didn't have to pay taxes on it, he didn't have to sell it at a loss, and he wouldn't have to get rid of it. Around this time, though, he was also looking to break into the foreign market. And on the home front, there was some confusion about what bourbon whiskey was. Some distilleries were exporting their whiskey into America, and they were calling it bourbon. It might have had uh, the 51% uh, corn in the mash bill, because at this time, there were rules and regulations about what different styles of whiskey could be labeled in the U.S. based on their mash bill. But... The Bourbon Institute sought to change that. They wanted American bourbon, bourbon produced in America, to get that special designation as a distinctive spirit or distinctive product of the United States. And so in order to appeal to senators and congressmen, uh, they spun this story and created mythology and a folklore around bourbon and how American it was. Um, they started as a story that bourbon was invented 
on the day that George Washington was inaugurated as the first president. And they really hyped up how American bourbon whiskey was. And this is right in the height of McCarthyism and the Red Scare and anti-communist sentiment. So I could imagine this really... Um, it really tugged at some of the heartstrings of senators and congressmen, but it really was a capitalistic approach um, to say, yes, this is an American spirit, it's special, and to sell it on the international market so it could compete against, against Scotch whiskey. Uh, and it worked. People bought it. And the, uh, the governor of Kentucky at the time misquoted the Congressional Act and said that it was a um, bourbon whiskey was our own native spirit of the United States. And so it's still kind of romanticized. Um, but really, that's not quite what happened. <laughs> um, so yeah, bourbon distillers were still, they, they were feeling at the top of the world with this, um, piece of legislature passing. And it really did help bourbon whiskey in the, in the long run, but the majority of the market in the U.S. wanted vodka. So the timing was a little weird and it didn't really help America out until maybe the 1980s um, when after the Vietnam War there was an economic boom um, in the late 70s, 80s, and the distillers were really able to spend more money on international marketing. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty interesting and funny piece of bourbon history, and uh, it's a very special date for bourbon. And I think it really just kind of um, adds to how American uh, bourbon whiskey is. And to uh, kind of celebrate this uh, special day, May 4th, um, be running through a bourbon flight, bourbon tasting flight. I have three bottles here, Evan Williams Bottled in Bond, uh, Bullet Bourbon, and Four Roses Single Barrel. Uh, all three of these, they're three pretty distinct styles of bourbon. Um, they're each three different years, and eh, roughly the same ABV. Uh, bullets at 90 it is the lowest, uh, the Four Roses and Evan Williams 
both coming in at 100. And price point, I mean, from low to high, Evan Williams, Bullet, and then Four Roses. Um, Evan Williams is definitely considered a uh, budget bourbon, um, but it's really good. And I think for the like best bang for the buck, it is definitely the best bang for the buck. Um, as you might or might not know, uh, bottled in bond means that the bourbon comes from a single distillery uh, from a single season, either spring or uh, fall, winter, and um, it's bottled under U.S. government supervision, stored in a warehouse supervised by the U.S. government for a minimum of four years, and it's bottled at 100 proof. This is to help maintain and uh, give some quality assurance for the consumer. So you know with a bottled in bond whiskey that it is a pure whiskey and it will be of good quality. Um, Evan Williams was credited with setting up the first commercial distillery on the banks of the Ohio River in 1783. Uh, in I believe in Louisville, and he's also credited with developing the sour mash method of producing whiskey. Uh, if anything, he at least uh, perfected it. I'm of the opinion that sour mash was a method distillers were using, but he really streamlined and perfected it um, and introduced the scientific method so that he could create a consistent product. So, let's have some. I opened the bottle and it's very aromatic um, already and it's got a beautiful color. Um, there is no age statement on the bottle but being a bottled and bond we can Rest assured, it's at least four years. I might peg it a little bit, um, a little older, just based on the color. Uh, viscosity, I see a couple of legs coming. It definitely beat it up at first, and now the legs are starting to come down. Uh, the color is definitely a golden honey, a little on the, uh, the darker side without being like a dark, dark honey. On the nose, um... Ooh, it's like crushed peanuts, um, vanilla, baking spices, you know, these very typical oak uh, notes. Kind of a marshmallow thing going on. It's a very pleasant aroma. There's a, there's a woodiness, too. Um, I don't want to... It's like a wet wood, like a freshly rained on kind of wood, not soggy or mildewy or not, not that kind of wood, but wood that's just been freshly rained on. I'm a fan of it. Okay, 
So mouthfeel, it's um, it's a little on the thinner side. So I'd peg it at four years. Um, it doesn't easily coat the tongue. It's still a bit runny. Um, it's got a very long finish. I'm still feeling it in my throat. Um, so the wood hasn't really had time to temper the alcohol. Um, and this is a hundred proof. So it is a little on the, uh, eh, higher side than most bourbons. Um, it's a good sipper for sure. Uh, flavors. Let me go back. It's sweet. A lot of those aromas that I picked up, uh, they come through on the palate as well. Uh, baking spices, vanilla, um, an apple, um, maybe like a, a Fiji apple. Um, and there's, there's something herbal, and it reminds me of like root beer, so something like uh, sassafras or uh, sarsaparilla and um, wild uh, licorice. Um, if you if you don't know what wild licorice tastes like, it's kind of like black licorice, but not as synthetic. Um, more natural herby uh, anise, I guess, is another uh, descriptor. Um, it's a very solid bourbon coming in under $18. Uh, I know price is so localized, but this is a, this is a really solid budget bourbon. Uh, I wish... I had known more about this bourbon when I was younger and a broke line cook in Michigan because I could have saved so much money. Good bourbon. Really good. Give this a rinse. Okay. Uh, next up, Bullet Bourbon. Bullet Bourbon is uh, produced by MGP and, well... Yeah, uh, it's it's a high rye mash bill. Um, I don't know if they do like small batch. Um, I'm assuming not, but anyway, uh, comes in at 90 proof, and again, no age statement. Um, but it's guessed that it's somewhere between six and eight years. Um, on the color, it's a little bit lighter than the Evan Williams. So that could be indicative of the, the char level on the barrel. Um, that can also affect the color. Um, it could also be that because it is 90 proof versus 100 proof, uh, you you lose some of that color 
through dilution uh, with the water. Still has a pretty nice looking viscosity. Uh, legs are forming nicely, steadily. Uh, pretty indicative of what I would think for a six-year bourbon. Uh, on the nose, I love that rye uh, pepperiness, like green pepper. Getting the, the baking spices and the vanilla from the oak. Very good. Good bourbon. It's Bullet is definitely... Um, it, it's my favorite for mixing drinks and for a while it was also my favorite sipping uh, just everyday sipping whiskey uh, until I discovered Pendleton but Bullet is still it will always have a space uh, in my bar and on my shelf not as sweet as Evan Williams Nowhere near as sweet. Um, the rye flavors definitely come out. Um, this bottle's getting pretty dang close to empty. So there could be some more oxidation going on. That's really pulling out the, the grassy and sap kind of flavors in the rye. Um, I, I've, I tend to notice this with... Uh, my whiskey bottles as I get closer to the bottom the flavors do change as the whiskey becomes more oxidized and so far it's not a bad thing um, I'm still getting that pepperiness and uh, there's there's still those um, vanilla caramel kind of flavors vanilla and caramel kind of flavors coming through um, that are indicative of a bourbon so again bullet still a solid uh solid bourbon uh i would peg this right around six years um the mouthfeel is definitely thicker it's closer to cream um the evan williams was very very thin mouthfeel uh this is Definitely thicker. It coats the palate easily. Finish is it's about medium. Uh, it's definitely shorter than the Evan Williams. And I feel it more in the back of my mouth. Um, actually, along the, along the roof of my mouth, near the back. Not in the chest at all. And it, it's pretty good. Good bourbon. <laughs> And last but certainly not least, Four Roses Single Barrel. Uh, this is not their single barrel cask strength. This is just your run-of-the-mill single barrel, 100 proof, aged between 7 and 9 years, um, given... The location of this particular barrel from the south side of Warehouse S, um, Rick 89, uh, position 4C. So it was on the fourth tier up from the bottom, 
and uh, three barrels in. So I think it hit a, uh, it was in a slightly warmer section of the warehouse, I think. I'm not entirely sure uh, how the ricks are numbered, but given that it was on the south side of the rick house, it probably saw more sun, which would mean more heat. Um, so it probably aged a little bit faster. Uh, all their single barrel picks um, are of the OBSV recipe. So it's higher rye, um, which I love. I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> So color, let's give that a swirl. Color is, ooh, it's between honey and caramel. It's definitely a lot darker. Um, almost, no, it's, it's still darker than Evan Williams. Um, the legs, give it a swirl. The legs definitely, uh, it's, the viscosity is definitely thicker than the previous two bourbons, and it's just now getting some legs, so it's definitely older. I'd pin it... Uh, I, I don't think this one is older than eight years. Um, I'm not entirely sure. That's just my guess. On the nose... Um, honey and wood and a little bit of citrus, orange, uh, orange peel, not so much orange zest, but orange peel, more, um, oily kind of orange notes and a little bit of apple, um, like a red apple, red delicious kind of apple. Mouthfeel is a lot thicker, um, moving from that cream to oily kind of mouthfeel, um, just coats the palate, coats the tongue really nicely. Um, it's like silk, um, beautiful finish. Um, the alcohol is definitely more mellow than the Evan Williams. So the Four Roses single barrel and the Evan Williams bottled and bond, they're both at 100, uh, 100 proof. But the Four Roses being older, it's definitely mellowed. Um, you don't feel that kick and that burn. And the finish, it, it sticks to um, kind of the back of your mouth still, um, the back of the tongue. You're not feeling it in your chest. You're not feeling it all the way down your throat. Um, again, uh, flavor notes, honey, apple, a little bit of baking spice. Um, you do get a little bit of the, the rye. Um, I don't think there's 
as much rye in this recipe as there might be in the bullet. Um, this is their the recipe that's a higher rye content, but it's it's more like like seasoning. Um, it's really good. You still get some of that rye spice, that rye uh, pepperiness, but you you also get um, honey and wood and vanilla and uh, the baking spices and that orange peel. And right now, I'm getting some like uh, dried orange peel kind of flavor or a dehydrated orange. Not as sweet as Evan Williams, but sweeter than Bullet. Um, again, a solid bourbon. Um, I'm definitely a huge fan of it. Um, but these are these are three different styles of bourbon and um I can't say I like one over the other but I I do think that they beautifully highlight uh, the range of flavors that bourbon brings to the world and even within how um I I hesitate to say constricting that bourbon it it definitely imposes boundaries on the distiller. Okay, you have to use 51% corn in your mash bill. You have to a well, at least the bourbon has to at least be in new charred oak barrels um, to be considered straight bourbon. It has to be aged at least two years. Um, so there are some restrictions on how a distiller can produce bourbon, but I think with these three, uh, a bottled and bond, a... Um, guess a fairly mass-produced bourbon um, and a single barrel bourbon you still get this wide variety of flavor and it's just so amazing um, and they each um, there's just so many different like the complexity of flavor is just astounding to me and I love it um, so yeah, uh, happy, happy Bourbon Day, happy Star Wars Day. Um, if you're at the market and, you know, pick up Evan Williams Bottled and Bond. It's a budget bourbon. It's the best bang for the buck. Uh, bullet bourbon, it's more mid-tier, I think. Um, should be priced somewhere between $35 and $40. Uh, I, I would not pay more than $40 for bullet and four rows a single barrel uh, not cask strength I have yet to have a cask strength 
but four rows of single barrel runs between 40 and 45 definitely pick up a bottle um they're just such good bourbons and again they i think they all really highlight um just how good this whiskey is and uh yeah they're definitely some of my favorite whiskeys Thank you all for listening, and thank you for your support, especially to my patrons for supporting the podcast. Remember, you too can also become a patron at patreon.com slash distilled, D-I-S-T-I-L-L-D. You can also go to the podcast website, distilled.me, and there's links to the Patreon there. And we also have the merchandise store where you can pick up distilled t-shirts, ball caps, and a whiskey is my love language t-shirt. All of these contributions go towards helping me procure new whiskey and being able to create uh, more digital content. So again, thank you all for your support. And a little life update, Um, I did just accept a new position as a uh, an assistant maltster and distiller at a local malt house uh, producing malted barley for local craft breweries uh, and helping support local farmers and they also have a craft distillery so I'm very excited about that Um, yeah wish me luck (laughs) anyway thank you again everyone Take care. Stay safe. Cheers.